I have Joseph. It's Karis here with Unapologetically Black Unicorns. I am so excited to have some young people in the house. Woohoo! So I don't do introductions, and I'm certainly not going to do introductions to young people because I'm going to let them introduce themselves. And I am going to start with Joseph. Yeah. Who are you? What are you? Where are you? What's going on? What's happening? <laughs> oh, he's got to go first. Wow. So, hey, everybody. My name is Joseph Yusuf. I'm from Washington, D.C. I'm here representing the New Deal for Youth along with Claps. Okay, Cloud, who are you? Go on. Okay. Well, hi, everybody. My name is Cloud. I'm originally from New Orleans, Louisiana, but currently in Bloomington, Illinois for college. And I'm also here representing New Deal for Youth along with Joseph. Amazing. So I am so, 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 so excited to have this conversation. I was in a meeting. I was talking about this podcast and I said, I really want to talk to some young Black folk. And Nia Westbay from CLASS, which is the Center for Law and Social Policy. I'm not, I'm used to saying CLASS. You know how you don't have to unpack an acronym? And then you, when you got to unpack it, it's like, what is it again? Anyway, so um, uh, she said, oh, she was emailing me while I was talking. Oh, I got some people for you. And I was like, yay, I'm so glad people listen to what I asked for. And uh, that's how I got introduced to you all. So I'm going to start again with Joseph. How lucky are you? But um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what this New Deal for Youth is? Like, what is it exactly? Gotcha. So a New Deal for Youth for me started about, about a year ago initially. The work that I was doing with Generation Hope, which is another nonprofit organization, the work that I was doing with them, you know, I guess there's a moment where there's a call for action where other, you know, programs come together and say, hey, are you connected with any young, you know, youth, parents, anybody that has a story and wants to be a part of change and become an advocate, right? So, you know, for me, that was a process. And when I joined, I remember that first meeting, it was like at least... 60, 50 plus people and everybody's trying to figure out, you know, where do we fit in? And I know for me, just a conversation along like healing and well-being and tying that into mental health, I knew for me, that would be the group that I would go towards. But keep in mind, there's about three other groups that makes up the New Deal for you. So there's economic justice and opportunity, healing and well-being, justice and safe communities, environmental justice, immigration justice, democracy and civic engagement. Those are the six policies in which we try to focus on. So for us, each group had to do this, but for my group, we all came together as collective and said, hey, what are the things that we need right now? What are the things that's, that are going like unheard and un- unnoticed? And for us, you know, we were all able to come down, you know, come together and basically develop a list of demands but for us, uh, healing and well-being, we have six demands. So, you know, to be brief with them, you know, we demand more access to mental health resources and more spaces, including schools, communities, virtual spaces, anything that young people gravitate towards. We need that space to be filled with acceptance and understanding. We demand more, more folks' life experiences determine both, you know, how real-world needs can be identified and also have solutions provided. We demanded into systems and industries and industrial complexes that undermine healing and perpetuate stigma. So it's like, basically, we just want to change the norm of society. And when I say society, you know, if you're being honest, like when I mean by society, I mean America. I don't know. When I spell America, I spell it with three K's and two A's. 
So we try to basically eradicate the whole predatory mind of just racism and classism and all those things. So we try to we try to just go about a different way of basically breaking down those old world mindsets and thoughts into something new in which we include everyone and everyone feels like they're being heard and everyone can participate. Yeah, that's that's like snap, snap, clap, clap, thumbs up, the whole nine yards of it. And I, you know, it's so interesting to hear how it's coming from youth. Like, and it's not like, oh, um, a sort of soft, well, we would like, do you mind, please? Excuse me, but <laughs> you all are like, no, we demand, and this is what we need to have happen. And not tomorrow, but probably yesterday. Thank you very much. Not just for yourselves, but for people who are going to be coming up after you. So I also want to ask Cloud, like, how did you get involved? What, what kind of um, helped you, first of all, gravitate to doing this kind of work? Yeah. So for me, like I started doing advocacy work in like my freshman year of high school when I was part of Amnesty International, which is like that nonprofit worldwide organization most of us know about. And then my junior senior year, I got into NOLA CYPB, which is New Orleans Children and Youth Planning Board. And basically I got with them and did my two years there. And then the Maggie, who was basically my boss, but I don't really want to call it that. She gets upset. <laughs> she said like, hey, since you're two years over, how about you join in class, New Deal for Youth, and, you know, continue your work because I know you love this. And I was like, okay, bet, like, let's let's do it. So I went through the interview process with that and became part of the public awareness for New Deal for Youth and basically social media, things like that, because I want to bring um, everybody's attention to what youth have to say because nobody really pays attention to that. Nobody pays attention to youth, what they have to say and their demands. And for me, I'm like, yo, y'all need to pay attention because we do have something to say. We have problems that also need to be fixed as well because we want to grow because then once we do and we be in that real world, air quotes, we're going to have to clean up a lot of things. So we you might as well help out now because if it's too late, then all hell's going to break loose. So I just wanted to bring that attention to youth voices and speak up for youth as well. It's really so fantastic how you talk about that. And it reminds me of, you know, the when the uh, everybody was uh, paying attention to Greta Thornburg, you know, there's a young person talking about environmentalism and standing up for environmentalism. Somehow everybody could hear her and act. And I, and I kept thinking to myself, well, there are all these black and brown kids who have been out in the streets advocating for stuff, you know, really wanting things to change uh, for the better for their communities, which we know if things change in our communities, they change for America. And I'm going to spell it with a C right now, right? But it's going to change. I, I know what you were saying about the two ways and you can, you can explain that in a second, Joseph. But, but when I was thinking about it, that really made me wonder why are youth of color, why are people not hearing you all's voice at the same kind of exponential rate that, that folks were hearing Greta Thornburg? And again, that might not be a question you're ready to answer, but if you're ready to answer, I, I'd, I'd love somebody's uh, thoughts about that. I have my own thoughts about it, but you know, some, maybe the timing was just right for her and everybody can gravitate towards environmentalism without it having maybe a, um, I think racism is tough for people. 
You know what I mean? It's, it can be divisive where environmentalism, so you're going to call me an anti-environmentalist. It's not really going to hurt me as much as if you call me like a racist. You know what I mean? I don't know. That's just my thought about it. What do you guys think? Me personally, I think people pick and choose which voices matter. And I see that in the media today. Like, I'm not even about to go into the colorism of just things because that, that plays a part into who gets the chance to speak on TV nowadays. But for me, it's just people really do pick and choose. Like, you'll be surprised. I've seen people say the same thing for 10 years. And then I've also seen some people come in just for a month and say the same thing. Guess what? They get that chance to be highlighted and retweeted and reheard and all that. And it's just like, you basically dedicated a month. I dedicated 10 years. But due to what the social, how many followers you have, who's following who, all these things that plays important to, oh, I think your voice matters. It's like every voice to me, and I know I'm gonna contradict myself later when I say this, but when it comes to like social changes from black and brown people, every voice matters, every voice. When it comes from us, it's just like, yeah, it's just, it's just different, it's just different. I appreciate um, you know, what you're saying. And um, the other thing I wanna remind everybody is that you know, this is called unapologetically black unicorns, which means you're supposed to be unapologetic, you're supposed to be authentic and you know, these are our experiences and our, and our feelings. And regardless of how other people perceive their world, because that's their world, you know, this is the world that you're living in. This is the world that you're experiencing and you have every right to express how you experience it. Yeah, no, like I totally agree because people always like choose specific voices, like going back to the social media thing, like if that person has like a lot of followers, they get all the attention. Like they could repeat what somebody else said, but you know, that person might not have all the follows, but this person has all of it. So they're like, oh, you're important. Everybody's gonna see it. You're important, you know what I'm saying? But thing is that everybody voice like matters. It doesn't matter like how many followers you have, how many views you have on a video, or you know, everybody voice matters. So Joseph said what I was going to say. That's why I was just saying here like, yeah, I agree with that. Because he took the word yeah. right out of my mouth. Oh, amazing. That's great. That's great. Yeah. And I, um, it's so funny when you talk about colorism, I had never heard of such a thing actually when I was growing up and I'll be mindful. I, I was, I'm an army brat. So I was brought up all over the world and um, it wasn't until maybe I was back here in high school. Oh, well, maybe it was a little bit after high school and somebody said to me, oh, you're really pretty for a dark girl. And I was like, what? And I had to go home and tell my mom. And I was like, what did they mean by dark girl? I'm, and it was a black person telling me this. So I was like, I didn't understand what it meant. I said, what does that mean? I mean, aren't I the same color they are? I mean, aren't we all black? Like, I don't get it. And then my mom had to explain it to me. And I was like, what? What are you like? Well, this is not, this doesn't even make any dang sense. It was, it was a really, really interesting wake up call. And then it does something to you, you know, it literally does something to you. So when, you know, you're talking about things relating to uh, healing and well-being, like that, those kind of statements, whether they're coming from our own, whether they're coming from other people, they affect how you think about yourself, how you understand yourself, your own self-esteem. So how did you, how did you, um, Joseph, get into the uh, healing and well-being justice kind of component of um, the New Deal? For me, um, and not too many people know, and I, I feel like I'm good with a poker face at times, but I'm an emotional person. My experiences with mental health, 
led me to join that group. So, you know, to open up just a little bit of my background, I was introduced to depression and anxiety in the fall of 2015. I felt like I was a man, you know, I was doing, you know, multiple projects with different organizations. I had the opportunity to be flown to a few locations. I was like, oh, I'm a man, like, I just love life. Like, y'all mess with me, I mess with y'all. I appreciate that, right? And I forget, school was about to start. I was laying down on my bed, came across this article, Fox 5 article, scrolling. I saw a familiar name. I'm like, it's not who I think it is. Moments later, my mother yells down the stairs, Joe, Joe, you know, you know, that, that, that got shot. And I was like, no, this isn't who I just read about. Long story short, one of the persons or the name that was mentioned was a childhood friend that I had grew up with. He got shot and killed. And keep in mind, it gets worse. I came back trying to, you know, deal with that grief and process. Somebody else I knew got shot and killed. About another week or two later, somebody else I knew got shot and killed. Take a little break for a week. Then it goes back into a deeper family roots. Somebody that I was close with just randomly passed away. And keep in mind, I seen this individual the night before he died and he was perfectly fine. Take another week or two, fast forward, somebody else I knew passed away. So within a span of three months, I lost five people. You wanna talk about the process of grieving and crying? To this very day, it's hard for me to cry and I'd be wanting to cry just to be an emotional person and let that stuff out. But it's so hard because 2015, like I just became afraid to live. I became afraid to do so many things. And keep in mind, I'm a parent. I became afraid to live. So you can only imagine what my fears and anxiety was transferred to my daughter. All these things go into consideration. So, you know, my, my battle with depression since then has just been a, a back and forth. And I always try to be the person who advocates, you know, what they really feel. Because as a Black man, I mean, that's another conversation. But as a Black man, in America, we bottle our feelings up. And we try to act all tough and be all manly and, you know, let our things hang. And it's like, you're faking, bro. And for me, I've been there. I've done that. And I don't care to fake it. I care to be emotional. Bro, if I love you, I'm going to say I love you. If I could dap you up, I'm going to dap you up. Like, I don't, I don't feel the need to keep living in those old norms of like a man is, you should be this, you should be making money, you should be tough and keep a public face. No, as a man, you're a human, especially as a black man, you're a human. I need you to validate your emotions and experience what you what you feel. Don't internalize that, don't, don't hurt yourself. I see people now nowadays, 40 years plus, still dealing with things that they had to experience as a kid. And due to them being all that tough macho man, they have a hard time being emotional. And it makes me laugh because I'm just like, dude, that's a regret. Like you're 40 plus and you don't, you can't experience happiness. Like you can't, you can't express that. Like people may be laughing, but that's a very difficult thing to do nowadays. It's hard to be yourself and truly be emotional. So for me, I say this to say, this is why I'm a part of mental health and, you know, the healing and well-being component of CLAPS. Because we got to change the, the norm. Right. You can't allow us to keep, you know, still be in that same bubble in that same headspace. Yeah. You know, thank you also for speaking up and speaking out, especially for Black men, because I know for Black people in general, it's a tough thing to talk about our mental health publicly, especially if we're struggling. We all have mental health when we're struggling with it. You know, it's, oh, you crazy or, you know, that kind of stuff. So we don't share, we don't talk about it. And I know when I was first diagnosed, it was something that, was kept in our family. It was, you know, me, my mom, my dad. I don't even think my brother knew for quite some time because he had, he was already off away at school. 
And, you know, when I started looking for people to talk to who were going through what I was going through, I couldn't find people who look like me. So, you know, I certainly do not want young people to have to wait as long as I had to wait. I won't tell you how long it took for me to finally meet some. And the person I met, she was already in her 70s. The, the person who I met who looked like me, who had been through things um, like I had been through. She was an amazing mentor. I will just say that straight up. I credit her for um, helping me think differently about my recovery and my healing path. And she became just an amazing mentor to me. She actually just passed away this past July. So uh, shout out to Jackie McKinney. But um, yeah, you know, nobody should have to wait that long. That's just like, you know, and, and she was as old as my mother. So that's the other thing is trying to find people around my same age range. But, but that was okay. At least I had somebody. And, you know, that again is the purpose of this podcast too, is to make sure people can hear stories of recovery, hear real stories from real people about what they've gone through, especially people who look like them. Now, of course, a podcast is like, I can't see them. Okay, well, everybody here is black, just so <laughs> I'm just going to say on this particular episode, we're all black. So just letting you know. Anyway, uh, Cloud, what, what about you? Or, you know, do you have, a, um, you know, any, any kind of uh, experiences that you want to share here as well? Yeah, I surely can. So I'm 18. Um, currently burnt out high school, college student, <laughs> very much burnt out. But I've suffered with adjustment issues, which ended up giving me depression, anxiety. And I do have a form of PTSD and paranoia. But basically, I've suffered with that since middle school. And I didn't know it until like my grandparents died and I couldn't say bye to them, things like that. And that ended up putting me in a big hole where it was like suicide, you know, trigger warning, trigger warning. So it was like suicide, things like that. And so in high school, I was like suffering real bad because, you know, in most black families, therapy isn't a thing, you know, mental illnesses for white people, <laughs> like it does not exist and is not really talked about. So I didn't have nobody to really talk to because everybody else around me, they thought I was like crazy or like need to go to like a mental hospital, things like that. Until like junior year, somebody ended up putting me on suicide watch at school. My dad got upset about it. I talked to my mom about like everything that was going on with me. I was like, hey, I'm just not okay. I'm burnt out. I really just don't want to be alive at all. And she was like, okay, let's go to therapy. And I was like, really? We really about to go to therapy? Okay, cool. So I was actually very happy that she accepted that I should go to therapy. So after high school, I came to college and went down that little black hole again until therapy. And they were like, yeah, we offer free therapy on campus. How about you sign up? And I was like, okay, cool. And so went to therapy. That's when I was the only Black therapist that was on our campus, I talked to her, which was crazy. So I was like, why is she the only Black therapist on this campus? Y'all need to get more Black therapists. <laughs> like, I understand this is a PWI, but we have a lot of international students and people of color. Please. <laughs> so I talked to her. I told her about my issues. And that's when she realized I do have PTSD and paranoia because of my reaction to certain events that have happened in my life because of uh, several shootings, several people dying in my life and so on and so forth. So now I'm just growing from that and continuously going to therapy <laughs> and like 
you know, just processing situations that may have happened that now I'm like, okay, now I need to address this. I need to address this so I can grow from it and learn from it as a life lesson. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there are only about 2% uh, Black psychiatrists, maybe 4% or so Black psychologists. And then total, when you look at you know people of color um, who go into you know those professions, you know it's it's around four to five percent. It's really low. So that's another thing that <laughs> you know that I've been talking about you know on this channel as well, and have talked to a black psychiatrist and a psychologist and Latino psychologist and Filipino psychologist, transgender psychologist. You know because we're trying to make sure that people are represented. Representation matters. Right. And being able to talk to somebody who looks like you may be important for certain people. Like for me, it was important at first. And, and, and then I was like, OK, no, I just need somebody who can understand my life experience as an army brat and like moving every three years. And like, um, how did that affect me and understanding my culture and sort of a cultural fit? And um, that's one of the things I think is really important. Is that something, by the way, that you all talk about um, under the health and well-being? What other what other things are you really advocating for or demanding? Because I think it's beyond it is advocating, but demanding is such a powerful, you know, a word. What other things are you you advocating for that you think intersect uh, with mental health? I think the road to change takes a while especially mm -hmm. when it comes to us and our color. It seems like, you know, change is like the last thing that we get, no matter how many years, no matter how many, you know, blood, sweat, tears, bodies are left on that path. I think given where we are, the fact that we can even come up with a list is a great, great point. But I feel like to actually incorporate those changes and to see the change that we have planned, I just feel it's going to take a while. And when I say take a while, I don't know. It could be, it's definitely not going to be tomorrow, mm -hmm. but maybe a year from now, maybe mm -hmm. a couple of months from now. What I've learned living in America, expect the unexpected. Like, don't don't think any and everything's going to go according to plan. Because by all means, when we started coming together, writing down these lists, you know, and, and the same year of doing these things, I was like, oh yeah, by the time we're done, man, Biden's going to get a hold of this and his people going to get a hold of this and this policy is going to be incorporated and da, da, da. And then disappointment happened. Mm -hmm. I do a lot, so I don't have to be patient. So, um, and Cloud, as far as doing the social media, because I think, you know, Joseph's bringing up this good point around, number one, being patient. Uh, the political process is a bit of a bummer. I mean, it does not always go as we would like. It doesn't go as fast as we would like. The stuff makes absolute sense. And it's like, tick tock, tick tock. Why isn't it done? So what, where in social media does all of this fit? Like, how do you get the word out there? So basically, so far with me being part of public awareness, we're like figuring out basically ways to bring everybody's attention to the problems that we're putting on the table. So like through podcasts or like through Instagram posts or through Twitter, TikTok, things like that. So people know like, hey, we have these issues. We need to figure them out. Like literally yesterday, please. And because for me personally, I use like Instagram a lot and I use that as a platform to bring awareness to like mental health and like, hey, I'm a black pansexual non-binary going through several, several mental issues. And I want you to know that you're not alone as 
a black person or just as a person in general like you're not going through this alone especially if you're young so basically for us for public awareness we're figuring out the best ways to like tell people hey these are our demands we want your help we want you to know like we need your help with this and you can contribute in these several ways basically great so joseph you were just recently in a story in washington post yeah, so you want to talk about that because that seems like another issue. I don't know how many people are really paying attention to it. And I'm just going to say it because I'm going to let you say what it was. So keep in mind, I'm a humble person. Um, for some accomplishments and celebrations, I don't go all out. Some things are just a small victory while other things are bigger. And for me, I appreciate the Washington Post. I appreciate Generation Hope for you know giving me that opportunity. I say all this to say, that opportunity came about of just me, like I said, being a, a teen parent. I had my kid when I was 17 in high school. And I was one of those kids that, you know, had the intelligence, could have once aware, but was like, nah, I was stubborn. I thought I'll be great, you know, making music and being the best producer ever. Still working on that, but still, I'm being you know, optimistic about the future. For me, that interview was just about my experience and what support was, you know, provided for that experience. So keep in mind, I started my college journey at UDCCC. I won't bash them, but it was just a situation where it was, you know, for me, high school, I did not do well. I didn't take school too seriously. And so, you know, my grades didn't look right to just go straight into a four-year university. You know, my time at UDC was, it was what it was. I was able to graduate, well, transfer in a timely manner. But when I got to Howard, you know, things just changed drastically. Like, I don't know, I'm a male. So just seeing what I saw on that campus amazed me. Like, it was like, imagine an innocent person going into like a, a strip club. That's how my experience was. I did not know what to expect. I saw so many beautiful, wonderful things. But I was just like, how is this going to help me? And keep in mind, not just how it helped me, but how it helped my, my daughter as well. So the article is just more so of me just being true to that statement of some of my difficulties, you know, almost about to be homeless, starting my senior year from, you know, just the, the guidance from the scholarships that I had and how they played a part into my survival. Because, you know, similar to Cloud, I had my, my mindset with depression and suicide. So there's bits and pieces, but that's, that's the, the interview. Yeah, I um, really wanted to bring that up because it's such an interesting narrative that continues and perpetuates about Black men being absent fathers, yet nobody really understanding sometimes the, and you're not an absent father, but I'm saying, and I'm saying that people don't understand the things that single parents go through, married parents, coupled parents go through when they're trying to do the best for their children. And for Black men, it's working, it's going to school, it's you know keeping a roof over everybody's head, et cetera, et cetera. If people aren't there and systems, now I'm talking about systemic barriers, right? If systems and policies aren't there to support that parent, especially in college, and you're trying to do the right thing, but then you know the, 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 you know, the newspapers are gonna say, oh, see, Black men don't parent. So being able to see a black, a young black man, college student, you know, struggling and trying to do the right thing to be the parent to his child is an important story for people to hear. So they get the context and not just the soundbite of black men are not good parents. 
And I must add, like, do not get it twisted, people. I did not do this shit by myself. I did not. Like, shouts out to the mother of my child. Shouts out to my family. Shouts out to my community and my people. We raised my, our daughter. Like, that. I couldn't do this by myself. Like, do not get it twisted. I did some things that, you know, are not the most things that you should live and be proud to say. But I did things that I had to do to provide for me and mine. But by all means, I cannot say anything else without highlighting the people who have helped me during this journey. Forever grateful, forever appreciative. It's about that village. It's all about the village, right? Um, Cloud, so, and this is both for for, uh, you, Cloud, and Joseph. When, you know, you're talking about, you know, living with depression and anxiety, you know, the similar thing I heard about your stories is the trauma of being Black in America and how that affects our mental health and well-being. Did I get that right? Yeah. So like being young and Black in America is the worst thing for like mental health because you when you get older, you start to realize like you have to grow up so fast. You really need to like learn how to cook, clean, like all these things. My parents taught me that at a young age because they told me, hey, yo, look, at some point we're not going to be here. And you know, these white people don't like us. So you're going to have to get yourself together and learn how to be independent now. So at a young age, I grew up real fast. I didn't really have much of a childhood. Like I could remember and be like, oh, this is what I did. Like everybody else. So it did take a toll on my mental health because I I realized like, oh, I got to work harder than like this white girl that's sitting next to me. Like I need to work harder than like this dude I'm like working with. You know, I have to work harder than them and push myself like harder. That's why I'm so burnt out. (laughs) But, you know, that's why like the mental health is very bad because of like how much we well, how much parents like dump on us like very young and make us realize at a very young age. So we end up just getting burnt out, like, so young to the point where we're like, bro, do I really want to do this? Like, is this really necessary for me? But at the end of the day, yes, it is. Because if we don't work hard, we're not going to get nowhere. and We're going to end up being homeless and broke. (laughs) So, yeah. And Joseph, do you have a sense, too, that, you know, being young, Black, male, here in America, like that can contribute the trauma of what has happened. Like how many people talk about five, six people being killed and knowing those people? Can, it does. Like what? I mean, Thank you. being Black in America, you're destined to get some bullshit on your way, regardless if you want it or not. I wish we can pick our struggles, but when you're Black, it's a default. You're going to experience racism. You're going to experience classism. You're going to experience hate from your own people. And that's another topic that we are not talking about, but the hate be so real when it comes from your own people. But it's just, you're, you're destined. You're destined to just be hit with the bullshit. And I'm not saying, keep in mind, pay attention to what I'm saying. I'm not saying you're destined to fail, but you're just destined to take the harder and challenging route. But keep in mind, for anything that you wish to achieve in life is going to require work. It just sucks that in order for us to be accepted as a decent human being, you still have to work twice as hard. To me, I hate to even say it like this, but it really is a marathon. Like racism is not gonna snap away like Thanos. It's not. It's just still gonna be here tomorrow, my next generation, the generation after that generation, so forth. The only thing we can try to do now is just try to be the best persons or people we can possibly be and to come together as a collective and as a unit. When people try to, you know, separate and go their own route and do their thing, sometimes it's great. 
But oftentimes those who try to do their own thing and, you know, become successful, they don't return back to their communities. They don't give back. They don't extend a hand and say, hey, my brother, my sister, I feel like I'm in church now. But hey, my brother or sister, like, come on, my brother. Like, you know, at least to me, I don't get that experience anymore. I don't see that. So when I hear, you know, you know, being black and being young in America, by default, man, you're going to deal with some shit. Sadly, you know, hate to say it, but hey, you're going to deal with it. You're going to get through it. And at the end of the day, the problems and struggles that you're going through is going to make you better. I promise that. I promise that. Some people, you know, may be better off with their reactions than others. But at the end of the day, what our people has taught me, going back from slavery, even before slavery, we will survive. We will overcome. That is part of our DNA. Yeah. I think you both are, you know, living examples of what the possibilities are. So a lot of uh, times people say, you know, lived experiences, I am the evidence, ITE, I'm the evidence. So, so each of you are the evidence, but I think there's more than just you as individuals. There's the collectiveness that, you know, you're talking about, you know, working on this, um, in this work for the new deal for youth, y'all didn't do it by yourself. You know, you talked about your families and, you know, people who supported you. So we know that it really does take a village that yes, we're going to go through some shit for dang sure. And not even going to lie to you as an older person about it. So if you have one last thing you would like to leave our listeners with, what would it be? be your word of wisdom you're gonna do a little wisdom dropping here i have i have good little two little good two quick ones the first one is and this is what i always say to my roommate when going out somewhere whatever make sure you stay safe and have fun all right because you only got one life you only can live once stay safe and have fun with it and then the second thing is is that you know when you feel as though the world is crumbling into like little tiny pieces Remember, you got something to live for. Like, you were put on this earth for a specific reason. You were, the universe is giving you several challenges, or like, whichever, like, higher power you praise to gives you several challenges. And you have to take those as a life lesson. Do not unpack your bags and stay there and cry. No, get your stuff and dip, learn from it, and continue. Because the universe is going to continue moving without you, and you're going to miss out on a lot. So just keep it pushing. <laughs> it's a tough one to follow. Um, if I'm being sincere, I would say, and this goes specifically to the black and brown people, know that you matter. No matter what you go through, always know that you have a value. You have something to prove, something to live for. Your issues and problems is just one mile. You can look at life however you want, a race, a marathon, a cycle, whatever. I'm inspired by Nipsey Hussle, so I'll say it as if he was still here. This life is just a marathon. Whatever you want to do in life, just know you're going to have to work hard and pace yourself. And within that pace, just know this is a marathon and know that the marathon will continue with or without you. So I would suggest that you do your best to keep up with us because change ain't waiting for nobody. Okay. And we are like, that was like, I don't have any other words that was beautiful, beautiful uh, conversation, beautiful last words for our listeners. And with that, I want to thank both Cloud and Joseph for joining me today. You guys are rock stars. Come on, really? Really? Like, I wasn't this cool when I was young. What the heck? 
So for all our youth out there, I, I really hope that you're you're listening to these words. And um, yeah, I just want to thank you guys for, for joining me today. Thank you for the opportunity and know that you're still young, no matter what those <laughs> numbers say. Like I said, thank you for having us, but you know, you, you're still young. Don't uh, put yourself up now. <laughs> Uh, thank you. Thank you. I'm very young at heart. So really, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for all the work that you're doing. And for our listeners, please make sure to share this episode. It's a very powerful episode. And to join us next week on Unapologetically Black Unicorns.